0: Peace be upon you. Some of you might be familiar with the movie uh, Ocean's Eleven, and I think it sets a good foundation for what we're going to talk about. So if you're not familiar with the movie, the premise is you got a couple characters, and they're trying to conduct a heist. And what they want to do is take money from a a casino. So they meticulously plan how they're going to carry out this heist and by you know in order to be successful they're constantly thinking about ways that the uh, plan could fail and coming up with contingencies and figuring out who they need for a certain portion of the plan and they're meticulously planning this entire thing to make sure that they're successful that they're steps ahead of the uh, casino owner and what this reminds me of is the fact that you know when they came to to take on this uh, this plan They didn't just go there with wishful thinking. They didn't just show up and say, hey, we'll wing it and, you know, figure out it, uh, figure things out along the way. You know, they meticulously planned ahead of time. They practiced, they rehearsed, uh, they thought about all these uh, backup plans that could happen in case things go awry. Um, And it shows that they were very deliberate about what they were doing. But so much in our life, we kind of don't take that same level of seriousness, um, especially when it has to do with our salvation. You know, we think that, hey, you know, we're submitters, we're believers, we believe in God. Um, Yeah, we sin, but, you know, of course we're going to make it to heaven. God is most gracious, most merciful. And this kind of thinking, this kind of mentality, uh, God calls wishful thinking, and it's actually a great recipe for disaster. In chapter 7, verse 46, it reads, A barrier separates them while purgatory is occupied by people who recognize each side by their looks. They will call the dwellers of paradise, Peace be upon you. They did not enter paradise through wishful thinking. And in 5713, the header is The Worst Losers, and it reads, On that day, the hypocrite men and women will say to those who believe, Please allow us to absorb some of your light. It will be said, Go back behind you and seek light. A barrier will be set up between them, whose gate separates mercy on the inner side from retribution on the outer side. They will call upon them, Were we not with you? They will answer yes, but you cheated your souls, hesitated, doubted, and became misled by wishful thinking until God's judgment came. You were diverted from God by illusions. And consistently we're seeing this aspect that, you know, people who had wishful thinking that, hey, we're just going to go to heaven just because, you know, because we believe in God and we believe in heaven. Um, it's it's a great way to kind of just uh, fail. Um, we have to be strategic. We have to plan. We have to prepare. We have to think about contingencies in case things go awry, just like the the, uh, characters in Ocean's Eleven. And if we're not captains of our destiny, we're prisoners of our wishful thinking. And wishful thinking by the fact that what it means is that we think just because we have a certain belief or a thought that this is how uh, reality is going to play out. And it's, a as mentioned, it's a recipe for disaster. And there's tons of these studies that, you know, people, they, when they think uh, a certain way, they just assume that reality is going to play out that way. And when they find out that reality doesn't play out the way that they imagine, uh, they're frustrated and then it becomes, you know, kind of a, a nightmare, a disaster situation. They become despondent and hopeless. And one of the ways to circumvent um, uh, wishful thinking and the, uh, the pitfalls of wishful thinking is by being cognizant of what the end goal is, Right. And they saw that, you know, when people were faced with reality, in the sense that, hey, look, things can go awry. The uh, the uh, plan you thought you had in place is a- actually not going to play out that way. That people became more practical in their uh, expectations. And for us, one of the blessings of being a believer is that we're cognizant that on the day, you know, there's going to be a day our life is going to come to an end, and then there's going to be a day of judgment where all our deeds are going to be held accountable. And because of that, it's going to put a sense of reality to us, making us allowed to think for, hey, these events that you know we're going through each day, how am I, in essence, positioning myself to be successful? By being aware of the hereafter, being aware of Judgment Day, being aware that, hey, look, all our accounts are going to be uh, uh, laid out before us, and those are what we're going to be judged by, hopefully it's going to shake us out of this aspect of wishful thinking. In 15.2, it reads, Certainly those who disbelieve will wish they were submitters. Let them eat, enjoy, and remain blinded by wishful thinking. They will find out. In 2.111, it reads, Some have said, No one will enter paradise except Jews or Christians. Such is their wishful thinking. Say, Show us your proof if you're right. You know, this is common among uh, certain sects where they think that just because they're, you know, Christians or Jews or some other religion, that they're automatically guaranteed uh, paradise. And this is nothing more than wishful thinking. So how do we know if we're taking this seriously? How do we know that we're not falling into this trap of wishful thinking? And again, to the, uh, the point of Oceans 11, do we have a strategy? You know, are we setting out a roadmap for how we're planning on being successful? And a simple definition of strategy is a plan of action designed to achieve a major overall aim. And what we're going to go over is seven steps to a solid strategy. And this is obviously in regards to uh, our salvation and the, the Quran. And um uh you know, pleasing God. But technically you can apply these seven steps to just about any strategy we're going after. So the first step in a good strategy is having strategic intent, you know, a compelling vision of the future that compels action. You know, and this has to do again with realizing what is our aim, what is our end goal, what is it that we're trying to achieve. And this concept of realizing that look, on some day we're gonna pass and there's nothing um That's going to, after that fact, uh, that's going to affect us. That everything we lay out in this life is going to determine the rest of our eternity. And there's a quote, I think it comes from uh, Wayne Dyer, but I'm not sure where where he got it from. It says, uh, remember the last coat you wear won't need any pockets. Meaning that there's nothing in this world we're going to be taking with us. You know, our uh, jobs, our title, our cars, our money. Uh, Or, you know, these luxuries that we have, they're all vanities and nothing of that is we're going to be able to take with us to the hereafter. The only thing that's going to matter is our righteousness. What good deeds did we lay out for us? So our strategic intent is to say, hey, we want to make it to heaven and we want to please God. That's our intent. And realizing the only thing that we're going to carry with us to the hereafter is our good deeds. So the second step after strategic intent is study. And if you think about, say, for instance, uh, football players, uh, anywhere from high school, college, professional, one thing that they spend a lot of their time doing is studying film. And what they're doing is they're watching the way that they play. They watch their competition, understanding how they play uh, to make sure that they're well prepared. And we have to do the same thing. We have to continuously kind of like study uh, ourselves, our competitors and realize, OK, how can we, in essence, uh, position ourselves to be successful? It'd be very uh, uh, naive to think that, hey, we're just going to show up, not understand our competitors and expect that, you know, we're going to be able to win. So who are the, uh, the players in our game? So the first one is obviously ourselves. We have to know ourselves. And God tells us in the uh, Quran that it's a commandment to examine ourselves. In 18103, it say, shall I tell you who the worst losers are? They are those whose works in this life are totally astray, but they think that they are doing good. You know we have to be uh, self-reflecting to think: Are the works that we're doing in this world are they going to be any benefit for us for a strategic intent in the hereafter? In fifty nine eighteen says, oh, you believe, you shall reverence God, and let every soul examine what it has sent ahead for tomorrow. You shall reverence God. God is fully cognizant of everything you do. So the first player we have to analyze is ourselves. The second entity we have to analyze is our egos. Because each person is, you know, unfortunately has an ego. And we have to realize does our ego play into this uh, process. In 2.54, it says, Recall that Moses said to his people, Oh my people, you have wronged your souls by worshiping the calf. You must repent to your creator. You shall kill your egos. This is better for you in the sight of your creator. He did redeem you. He is the redeemer, most merciful. In 12.53, uh, this is the uh, governor's wife. Uh, she testifies. It says, I do not claim innocence for myself. The self, the ego, is an advocate of vice except for those who have attained mercy for my Lord. My Lord is forgiver, most merciful. And one of the tricky aspects of the ego is that the ego can convince us of anything. Um, Any of our actions we do, the ego can justify it for us. We're very easy to trick ourselves. Um, One of the quotes I like is, you know, the person was so clever he could convince himself of anything. And Richard Feynman said, you know, the first principle is not to... uh, Fool yourself, and you're the easiest one to fool. You know, we're always going to have these uh, confirmation bias, these biases that are going to put things into our favor. And we have to be cognizant of that. We have to think, okay, our ego is going to come up with an excuse to justify our bad deeds. How do we circumvent that? How do we basically uh, plan against that? Um and that's the reality is everyone thinks that they're justified in their actions. You know, very few people are going to realize that, look, maybe I'm not that good of a person. Maybe I'm, uh, you know, when I behaved in that way, it wasn't in the best manner. Um, we always have this tendency of being able to justify our actions to uh, say, hey, you know, we weren't at fault. It was the other people. They just didn't understand our situation. You know, we're so quick to be compassionate towards ourselves and our actions and quick to, you know, reprimand others for theirs. So we have to be cognizant of that. The third player in this uh, equation is the devil. So in 35.6, the devil is your enemy, so treat him as an enemy. He only invites his party to be the dwellers of hell. And just like, you know, anyone who's going into a uh, competition, you need to study the, uh, the competitors, right? Who is it that you're competing against with? Uh, just like the football players study film to realize, okay, what are the plays, the offense, the defense of their competitors? We have to do the same. And, you know, what are the tricks that the devil is going to basically lay before us to, um, to, uh, uh, to trick us? And one of the, the big aspects that has to do with self-control and willpower. Because if we have unlimited self-control and willpower, you know, it would be very easy to maintain righteousness. And the reality is you know, from uh, all these studies is that you know, self-control and willpower, not only are they linked, but we have a limited supply. You know? Eventually, we're going to get worn out. We're going to give in. And God gives us the, uh, the instructions on how to best you know, uh, circumvent these, uh, these pitfalls uh, of lack of self-control, lack of willpower. It's to avoid the threat when possible. So this requires two elements one is to understand where is it that we feel vulnerable you know under what circumstances can the devil get to us maybe it's around certain individuals or certain environments or certain you know like uh, scenarios and by being able to identify okay these are the points where i'm vulnerable the simplest task is to avoid that you know if you've got a problem with drinking don't go into a bar you got a problem with gambling you know maybe stay offline or don't go into a casino because those are the areas you're going to be the most vulnerable and they did a study. They had two thousand people, where they were randomly pinging them uh, to see, you know, if they felt like they were uh, uh, had to exert, you know, self control or willpower. And what they found out is the people who quote unquote had better self control and willpower, they were in just less situations where they were tempted. And that's a, you know, very simple kind of. Uh, the reality is, look, if you don't want to fall into sin, stay away from areas, from scenarios where you're going to fall into sin. And by being cognizant of that, but being aware of that, knowing where our vulnerabilities are, we're going to be more likely to be successful. So after study and after, you know, strategic intent, the next thing is preparation. Uh, Benjamin Franklin had a quote, that says, by failing to prepare, you're preparing to fail. And it's the same thing, you know, preparation is a commandment among the believers. Um, We don't go through, you know, our uh, adversity and hardships through wishful thinking. Um, We go through, uh, through them through preparation. In 860, it says, you shall prepare for them all the power you can muster and all the equipment you can mobilize that you may frighten the enemies of God, your enemies, as well as others who are not known to you. God knows them. Whatever you spend in the cause of God will be repaid to you generously without the least injustice. And you think about this, you know, in the past, the believers had to go to war. You know, they didn't go to war with feathers, right? They didn't go to war unprepared. No, they planned, they strategized, they uh, uh, they uh, came well-armed, they trained, right? They didn't just show up and say, oh, you know, God's running everything. He's going to take care of the situation. No, you know, there is a system that God has in place. And God says in the Quran repeatedly that God's system is unchangeable, right? God could easily eliminate our competition. God could easily, um, uh, you know, uh, put us in a situation where we don't have to go through hardship or adversity. But if he was to do that, we wouldn't grow. So part of the process, the growth process is that we have to prepare, we have to train. And there's a Story from uh, Mike Tyson. So Mike Tyson was going to go to uh, a, a big fight. And at this point, he had the uh, uh, the championship. And, you know, everyone knew him. Everyone watched all his fights. And I can't remember who he was competing against. But – um the uh, reporter during an interview said, hey, Mike, how do you feel about this? You know, this person has studied your every move. You know, he's trained meticulously to fight just you. And you have no clue, you know, uh, while you train to fight all these people, this one person is trained only to fight you. And his response was awesome. He says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And that's the reality. He's like, look, we are going to have a plan And Still, we are going to get punched in the face. So we have to understand, how do we handle uh, defeat? How do we handle these moments when you know life is going to punch us in the face? And again, this is part of God's system. In 3.140, it reads, If you suffer hardship, the enemy also suffers the same hardship. We alternate the days of victory and defeat among the people. God thus distinguishes the true believers and blesses some of you with martyrdom. God dislikes injustice. So this is part of God's system that God alternates the days of victory and defeat in order to strengthen us to bring out our true convictions you know those of us who haven't trained haven't prepared when all of a sudden adversity hits we're going to become uh uh turn about phase you know turn the other way run away from uh the truth and basically abandon uh God and it shows you know what we're made of so in order to overcome this this uh inevitability of getting punched in the face, you know, of uh, alternating between victory and defeat, we need to be adaptable. And this means we have to be able to adjust ourselves to the circumstances. Uh, One of the quotes that says, things change. The only thing constant is change. It's up to us to be adaptable to that change. And there's an awesome story with uh, Michael Phelps. So Michael Phelps, when he, uh, his coach trained him for years since he was a youth, And one of the things that his coach would do is he'd constantly mess with him. He would, uh, you know, uh, uh, hide stuff, distract stuff. Uh, One time, apparently, I guess this was a common occurrence, he would like step on his goggles right before he was about to compete uh, to break them, to shatter them. So then to see how he reacts under these uh, scenarios. And Michael Phelps got very comfortable with this level of ambiguity, this level of uncertainty when these last minute, you know, uh, instances uh, come up to the point that when he was competing in China, uh, his goggles had a malfunction and they were getting water in them, he still, still won uh, gold. And the reason being it's because he trained under those circumstances – a more uh, interesting or funny uh, use case is in the, uh, the movie with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Bloodsport. So, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme would train with his uh, blindfolded. So when uh, Chung Li poured sand into his eye, you know, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme still was able to fight because he trained under those circumstances. And the reality is like, look, we're going to hit turmoil. We're going to hit rough patches of uh, uh, sea. And the question is, how do we adapt to these scenarios? And one of the quotes I love, it says, you can't control the winds, but you can adjust the sail. And this is a reality. We're going to come into our points in our life where we're going to hit turmoil. We're going to hit hardship, adversity. And there isn't anything we can do to change the environment, most likely. But what we can do is adjust the sails, right? We can adjust our behavior, our reaction to the environment. In 1022, it reads, "He is the one who moves you across the land and sea. You get on ships, they sail smoothly in nice breeze. Then, while rejoicing there in violent wind blows, and the waves surround them from every side. This is when they implore God, sincerely devoting their prayers to him alone. If you only save us this time, we will be eternally appreciative. But as soon as he saves them, they transgress on earth and oppose the truth. O oh, people, your transgression is only to the detriment of your own souls. You remain preoccupied with this worldly life. Then to us is your ultimate return. Then we inform you of everything you had done. Right? So, the reality is like, look, we're going to hit rough patches of water and there isn't anything we can do. The only thing we can do is we can plan, right? We can uh, 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 train, we can prepare, and we can uh, become adaptable. And that's it. And if we have those ingredients, you know, God willing, you'll be successful through the uh, the turmoil because the reality is God controls everything. And God puts us in these situations to strengthen us, to bring us, uh, to elevate us. And we have to trust in God. So the, uh, the fifth step to having a good strategic uh, plan is to have a concentration of force. And it's very tempting, you know, when you get into submission, when you start reading the Quran, you want to apply everything. And that's good. But the reality is like, look, until you can tackle one of your obstacles, you're not going to be able to be very effective at the next one. And when you look at people who, uh, military strategists and stuff, they constantly say, look, if you spread yourself too thin, you're going to lose. And I'm going to... Uh, revert to a uh, clip and this is from a book actually so the person who put this together it's on youtube it's a fight mediocrity and it's about a book it's called the one thing so i'm going to play that and then we'll get back to it
1: so i remember finding out about personal development and i thought it was just the greatest thing i basically sucked at everything but i realized hey i can improve whatever i suck at and that's pretty cool but I ran into a problem that almost everyone going through the same journey runs into which is basically starting to want to improve everything so it goes something like this this is awesome starting tomorrow I'm going to wake up early meditate for an hour go to the gym for two hours go to work and as soon as that's done go to a martial arts class come home and learn how to play the guitar because I've always wanted to play it and once I'm done with that I know it's really late, but I'm going to work on my five different business ideas." And that sounds so good, because all of a sudden you're excited about life again. But here are the two most likely outcomes of that dream. The first, and the most likely one, is that you won't be able to actually do it. I don't care how great you think your willpower is, because willpower is like a battery. It gets drained. So when you start your day off trying to be the Dalai Lama, and then Ronnie Coleman, and then Anderson Silva, and then Jimi Hendrix, and finally at midnight, you want to be Mark Zuckerberg, you won't be able to get to the Silva, Hendrix, and Zuckerberg point, if you even make it that far, because the battery is empty by then. The other option, and this is very unlikely, is let's assume a hypothetical situation where you somehow can manage and consistently get through all those things. In this unlikely scenario, the best outcome is that you'll still end up being average at everything. That's it, just average. So we're talking about success here. In terms of how it's usually defined. We think of the Dalai Lama as a success at what he does. We think of Ronnie Coleman as a success at what he does. Same thing with Anderson Silva and Jimi Hendrix and Mark Zuckerberg. Now, if you look at all those people, what do they have in common? You don't see Mark Zuckerberg busting through his shirt. Why? Because if he dedicated his daily hours and focus to his workouts, he just wouldn't be Mark Zuckerberg. Same thing with Ronnie Coleman. If he's going to be up on the stage in six months, he's focusing on one thing, and that's his physique. He's not playing the violin while building awesome business websites. And all of that leads us to this idea of the one thing. Every person who we view as successful has the one thing that they focus on. If it's Mozart, it's the piano. It's not the piano plus hitting the gym and shooting a basketball for hours. If it's LeBron James, it's basketball. It's not basketball plus playing the piano and trying to compose for hours. Now, let me make this clear that I'm not here to define success for you. Your definition of success might be different than what's commonly accepted. Maybe for you, Mozart and LeBron James aren't successful. Maybe you like the idea of being okay at everything and having a more balanced lifestyle. And that's fine. I'm not here to tell you what you should do or how you should think. But if you're asking about how to be successful, And success is defined for you by someone like Mozart in music or LeBron James in basketball. You do have to realize that there's almost no balance with that kind of success. There just isn't. Hope you
0: guys like that clip. Uh, So the person who put that together has a number of summaries that he's done from really awesome books. Highly recommend to check them out. Again, it's Fight Mediocrity. So just to recap, you know, the seven steps so far for a, a good strategy is one, strategic intent. Uh, two was study, three was preparation, four was adaptability, five was concentration of force, and the sixth step is resourcefulness and One of the best examples of being resourceful is in David, and the concept of being resourceful is realizing that look you don 't need infinite amount of resources to be able to get the job done when you prepare, when you plan, when you strategize, you have to trust in God that God has given you everything you need to be successful. And the example of David is when he faced Goliath, one of many examples from David actually, uh, that he was able to take down Goliath with nothing more than some rocks and a sling. And that's all it took from him to be able to uh, give the children of Israel the morale to eliminate his enemy. And But he didn't go into this blindly. He didn't go into this wishful thinking. And I'm going to read from 1 Samuel, this in the Bible, starting from verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. You are just a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed both the lions and the bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, the Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of the Philistine. So Saul said to David, go and may my Lord be with you. And you see that, you know with nothing more than the training that he had raising sheep uh, and the uh, training he's done with the, uh, the sling and the rocks that he felt absolutely confident he can take down uh, Goliath, and he was. Uh, so he didn't have wishful thinking. He was well prepared, and he was resourceful. He didn't say, hey, look, I need you know armor, and I need 10 men, and this and that. He knew that God has provided him with everything. And you see this uh, same example with Moses. When Moses went to uh, Pharaoh, you know, God has already endowed him with everything he needed to be successful. He spent a life, in essence, training for that moment, unrealizing that that's what he was training for. And he was able to take down uh, Pharaoh and his army with nothing more than a staff and the uh, commandments from God. And I want to talk about one other scenario, of someone who's just an amazing strategist. And this is uh, Solomon. And the example is uh, the Solomon when he engaged with the Queen of Sheba. So... You think of this, Solomon gets word from the Hopu that, hey, there is a queen with a mighty palace and, you know, kind of like uh, tons of uh, uh, constituents who's worshiping the sun instead of God. And Solomon said, hey, I want to turn these people into submitters. So how do I go about doing that without, um, you know, uh, having to go to battle, having a fight, uh, having to do anything other than, you know, use my words, uh, ink and paper. So he sends a note to the uh, Queen Sheba from the Hopu that says, come to me as submitters, knowing full well that they are going to interpret that not as submitters to God, but submitters to him. Because the way they understand that message is they're saying, oh, this king, you know, they're tyrants and they want to subjugate their people and, you know, make people bow down to him. So they test Solomon by sending him a gift. And when Solomon gets this gift, he replies back and says, you know, what you're giving me uh, and this is in twenty seven thirty six. Says, "Are you giving me money? What God has given me is far better than what He's given you. You are the ones who should rejoice in such gifts." So to the Hopu, he said, "Go back to them and let them know that we will come to them with forces they cannot imagine. We will evict them, humiliated and debased." In essence, he's letting them know that, making them think that they are going to go to battle. That he's going to basically come at them with all these forces and preparing and taunting, in essence, the Queen of Sheba and her people to go to battle with him. So knowing that that was the intent of the message, that they were going to interpret it that way, what does Solomon do? So Solomon actually lives up to every word he said. He says that he will uh, come to them with forces they can't imagine, that he will evict them, humiliated, and debased. So Solomon had the uh, the djins working for him. So these are forces that they can't imagine. He had them the jinn go and take uh, Sheba's uh, the queen of Sheba's palace and bring it back to his um, uh, land. So he debased them. And when they came and they saw that, hey, this is my palace in Solomon's uh, 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 region, they realized that they were humiliated. It was kind of a prank, you know. And it, this was what it caused for them to realize that, oh my God. You know, Solomon's right. He doesn't want us to, to prostrate to him. He wants us to submit to God. And he was able to do this to turn the Queen of Sheba, turn their, uh, her uh, constituents into uh, believers in God with nothing more than choice words, right? Ink and paper and sending the Hopu to deliver the message. And this shows amazing strategic ability. And it's the fact that Solomon was able to think so many steps ahead Rather than just like on a very surface level saying, okay, you know, you make one move, I make one move. Think of it in the sense of chess. You know, he was looking at the board 10 moves deep when the Queen of Sheba was only looking at one play at a time. And because of that, he had a major advantage. And this takes us to the last last element of a good uh, strategy, and that's execution. Because the reality is you can have a phenomenal plan, but if you cannot execute on that plan, if you cannot bring it to fruition, it's pretty much meaningless. And again, Solomon's example is a good example of this, but I want to touch on another one, which is Joseph and his brothers. So to backtrack the story of Joseph, uh, Joseph at the time had 10 brothers and they uh, turned against him. When he was a boy, they uh, threw him into a well, left him for dead. He got sold into uh, slavery. Then uh, the governor's wife tried to seduce him and he was thrown into prison and then eventually got out of prison and he became the... uh, uh, highest-ranking children of Israel in all of Egypt, reporting directly to the the, uh, the Pharaoh at the time as the treasure. So, you know, number of years has gone by, and at this point, he's rationing out provisions to all the people who come to visit them. And one day, his 10 brothers show up, and they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. So he has a series of things that he's thinking about as far as how he can take advantage of the situation. So for one thing, he wants to know, okay, how is his, uh, his father, Jacob. He wants to know how's his brother. Uh, So he had a younger brother named Benjamin. He wanted to know how he's doing because he wasn't part of the tent. Uh, He wanted to give word to these people without letting them on. And he also wanted to test his brothers to see have they changed. You know, do they have any remorse for what they've done to him? So what he does is he treats them incredibly well. He asks, he says, okay, you guys are 10 brothers. Ask about his father. They find out that his father is still living um, and finds out that, okay, his uh, other brother's full brother, Benjamin, is still doing fine. So he thinks, he says, okay, I want to bring these people back. I want to bring back Benjamin. I want to give word to my father that I'm okay, but I don't need them. uh, I don't want them to be aware of who I am, that I'm Joseph. I'm the brother that they uh, left for dead. So what he does is he uh, convinces them, says, hey, come back, bring your other brother. I'd love to meet him. And uh, he puts basically all their goods that they were trading with Joseph back on their, uh, uh, their camels and sends them back. So when they get back to uh, Jacob, uh, they give the news to, to Jacob saying, hey, you know, the treasurer in Egypt is super nice. You know, he gave us all our uh, – he, he treated us really well. He even gave our goods back. And all he's asking is for us to bring our brother, right, the next time we visit and this is a clear indication to Jacob that, hey, this is Joseph. This isn't just some random dude who's being incredibly nice, that this is the uh, the, the prophecy that uh, Joseph was supposed to fulfill. And Jacob knew that Joseph was always going to fulfill this prophecy because he believed and trusted in God. So the request was that he bring back uh, Benjamin. So when he brings back Benjamin and they bring uh, all the, uh, the, the camels looking for additional goods, what he does is he places the king's cup into Benjamin's uh, bag. And the intent was to see how did the brothers react to this situation. So he places the king's cup and says, okay, someone has uh, stolen the king's cup. And they're accusing uh, Joseph's brothers. And they say, hey, you know, we're not liars or thieves. And he says, okay, what's the punishment for the uh, liar if uh, one of you is a thief? And their response was that you own that person. So this was the one piece that Joseph couldn't control. And this was the piece that it says that it was, you know, God's will to give Joseph back his brother. So when they look into each uh, of the brothers uh, uh, bags, they see that, oh, it's in Benjamin's bag. And he gets to keep Benjamin and he sees how did the brothers react to this situation? Are they just kind of like willy dilly, like, oh, whatever. We lost Benjamin. No big deal. We didn't like him that much anyway, like they did to Joseph in the past. Or have they changed? And what they see is the oldest brother, Reuben, says, hey, in the past we lost Joseph. I'm not leaving until we get uh, our brother Benjamin back. And this is, in essence, is showing that at least Reuben has changed from the situation, that he doesn't see, you know, the act that he did to Joseph as something that's just. So they go back, they tell Jacob the news, and Jacob realizes, no, this is Joseph. Because he says, go back to Egypt, get your brother and get Joseph and come back uh, in chapter 12. So when they go back at that point, they realize that, oh, this is, you know, not just some random treasurer, This was Joseph. This was the brother that they left for dead. And all this was executed so flawlessly. You know, you look at everything that uh, Joseph had to do. He was steps and steps ahead of everyone else. And this is a consistent theme that you see in the Quran. And it's an interesting observation is that typically when the messengers, uh, they're depicted in the Quran, they're thinking multiple steps ahead. They're not thinking just, okay, one thing, you know, I'm going to do this and then see what happens. They're continuously thinking multiple steps ahead. Um, And this shows real wisdom. And this is one of the blessings that God gives to believers is wisdom. And it says in the Quran in chapter 2 that wisdom is one of the great treasures. It's better than gold and silver. And it's one of these things that if we're being strategic, if we trust in God, if we prepare, we study, we uh, are become adaptable, we're resourceful, we concentration, or concentrate our forces, we execute, <laughs> did I miss anything? And uh, I think that's it, preparation, yeah, um, that we're going to be successful. And we'll learn from this situation. So God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at QuranTalk at gmail.com or on uh, uh, at Twitter at Quran And until next time, peace and God bless.